Welcome to episode 16 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Implies that there's something wrong with negative emotion. And I think that's a really big contribution towards the increase in mental health symptoms these days, is people are afraid to feel. They're afraid to feel anything that's distressing or negative. Hi. I'm Rowan, and today we'll be speaking with Tara Hicks, who is a psychologist working in a private practice called Minded Psychology. Tara has a real focus on working with emotions, emotional injury, and, as we'll discover, ultimately, trauma. These podcasts are brought to you by TalkLink, which is an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. If you'd like to ask Tara a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. Okay, let's dive in. So trauma is emotional injury on the brain. Uh, trauma is not necessarily what happens to us. It's our interpretation of what happens to us. And because we're all so different and we're, we have such different upbringings, which is essentially our programming, we interpret the world all differently. Um, and if we interpret an experience with distress, Um, such distress that our brain and body isn't able to process it, um, that leaves trauma in us. So in other words, it is emotional injury on the brain and the body. And in my opinion, that's where psychological symptoms come from. They're actually communication that uh, there has been an emotional injury and that we need help to process it. And that's what I and Minded Psychology do. It reads symptoms as communication rather than labelling and treating the symptom in isolation. The word trauma sounds really heavy and really scary. And I'm sure a lot of people don't want to think that they might have trauma or would dread the idea that someone significant to them has trauma. And you talked about major trauma, minor trauma, you know, big T's and little T's. Um, Like when you think about trauma, is there anything that you can reflect on or have learned to make it seem less scary or more approachable? Or is it just like, it's bad, it's always bad, it's always serious? No, no. And I, I guess this is the difference between someone who specialises in treatment or psychology and, and the, someone who doesn't, is that trauma for all of us isn't a scary word. It's been normalised. Um, another... Another definition that I usually use more often than trauma is emotional injury. So when I talk about emotional injury, it's about the impact that an intense emotion has had on our brain and body, and that's every human. So I don't see the word trauma as something scary or as something to fear or as something that you should feel ashamed for. So let's start calling it emotional injury and see it as the impact that intense emotions have on our minds and bodies. And just to distinguish too between uh, what I called big T and little t trauma, I think it's really important to understand that those definitions don't define what's happened to you. And I think a lot of people make that mistake where they say, oh, big T trauma is something really traumatic. Little T trauma, oh, it's not that bad. It's not about what happens to you. Trauma is never about what happens to you. Uh, emotional injury isn't about what happens to you. It's about how you interpret what happens to you. So when it's life or death, the definition is big, big T trauma or uh, more intense emotional injury on the brain and the body. 
but when it's um, an emotional impact on the brain or body that isn't life or death, we call that little T trauma. So we do in this industry need to be really, really careful, really mindful not to invalidate some little T traumas, some little T emotional injuries that happen to people uh, just through the language. Yeah, you're so right. The language we use to describe things like this totally affect how we see them in ourselves and in others. You mentioned big T and little t trauma, and I guess having set the context now that that trauma is ultimately an emotional injury, I'll use the word trauma because it is widely used by people, but acknowledge everything you've said up to this point. Can you dig into big T and little t emotional injury or trauma in a little bit more detail, please? Absolutely. Well, let's start with big T trauma. Big T trauma, I think, is quite obvious. It's the horrific events that some people, unfortunately, experience in their life, you know, from <clears throat> emotional abuse to sexual to physical to war to famine. It's the, it's the really intense, horrific, traumatic events. Little T trauma is the way we interpret uh, events in our life. So... A really common example of little t trauma is attachment injuries. So fractures in the attachment relationship from early childhood. The biggest impact is from conception till around the age of seven, but our attachment style is developed from conception to the age of four. So how we relate with a maternal or a paternal attachment figure in those formative years kind of sets our brain up for every future relationship that we have with ourselves, most importantly, but with others. Of course, there can be some big T traumas in those attachment relationships, such as uh, neglect and abuse, but it's surprising how common there are little T traumas in those attachment relationships in formative years. So what's an, what's an example of an attachment injury and how you generate that? I'll give you, do you, want a, do you want a really specific example? Yeah, if you could. This is one I use in my parenting coaching quite often of the parents of the young people I see. So a little boy, let's say he's about six or seven. He's sitting in the lounge room and he's building a Lego tower and he's really invested in this tower and he spent about half an hour building it, which is quite a long time for a little boy of that age to kind of focus on one task. Um, he's so proud of it. He jumps up to yell out to dad to come in and have a look at his Lego tower. And as he jumps up, he knocks the tower over and it crumbles. And he instantly bursts into tears because the emotion I would imagine would be something similar to disappointment. Um, dad comes running in to the room to see his child crying over spilt Lego. He looks at the situation rather than the emotional need. And he thinks, what a ridiculous thing to cry about. And I guess that's how he reacts to his child. He says, come on, it's just Lego. We can fix it. Come on, I'll even help you. Come on, mate, stop crying. It's silly. It's just Lego. You'll be all right. So just in that simple response, uh, dad has unintentionally invalidated his son's emotional needs. That is a really good example of little t trauma to an attachment relationship. So what would a better response have been from dad? So an emotionally intelligent and in-tuned response would be for dad to walk in, first regulate his own emotion because I'm sure he's got, you know, the world of pressure in his life at the moment. 
Um, so he is going to, in comparison, look at the Lego as insignificant. But he, if he can take a deep breath and try and connect to the son's emotional need rather than the story, he will be able to then respond teaching his child how to regulate his own emotion. So he would maybe get down on the ground with his son, take a deep breath and give him permission for how he's feeling. So say, oh, matey, that would be so disappointing. I'm so sorry, bud. I know you've spent a long time building that. Oh, how disappointing, buddy. I know, I know. That's emotional coaching. That's giving your child permission for their negative emotion. That will allow them to feel not only not alone in how they feel, which I think is another contribution to mental health issues. Um, it will give him company in how he feels, but it will also coach him to be able to self-soothe and regulate that emotion. Also, it gives that little boy an opportunity to start building it again himself, which through experience teaches him how to cope with failure and mistakes and not getting it right the first time and messing up. So there's just so many emotional opportunities and lessons in that one interaction. And if parents are parenting with awareness uh, consciously, then they're able to meet those emotional needs and, and support their children's brain to develop healthily. And in, a, in essence, that's what emotional injury and trauma impacts brain development. It affects the brain's ability to regulate emotion and dysregulation is mental health symptoms. That's why I use mental health symptoms and the inability to regulate emotion as communication about what emotional needs are. So when someone does feel understood and validated, when they are experiencing a negative emotion, what does that understanding and support and later training to be able to sit with those negative emotions do for them that puts them on a different trajectory to someone who may not be able to manage those sorts of negative emotions? it literally synapses to a different part of the brain. So instead of a negative emotion firing off to the impulse brain, which then triggers a host of psychomatic symptoms, which are the physical symptoms that a lot of people experience when they're unwell, and then triggers impulsive behavior. And if a lot of us have heard the fight, flight, freeze response, that's in essence survival of our negative emotions. I don't know about you, but I can definitely say that 99.9% .9 of the time that I have a negative emotion, I'm not actually unsafe. But our bodies, our bodies still think that we are. So we're responding like we are. We're responding to protect ourselves from that imminent danger, which affects our physical body and affects our neurological functioning, synapse into the impulse brain, and then affects behavior which is why I find it really important to read symptoms and behaviours communication. Lots of people like to judge the behaviour and the symptoms or label. Um, but if you can actually read what they're trying to tell you, then you can help a person to feel connected and understood, which will soothe their emotions, which will stimulate a synapse to the prefrontal cortex, which will allow in their healing. So you talked about reading symptoms as a way of communication. What sort of symptoms are you looking for? Um, the mind or the body will tell us a range of communication through symptoms. So uh, some physical symptoms such as tummy aches, headaches, 
significant sweating. I had a client a couple of years ago that came in with a chronic blushing problem. Uh, so she, every time she, she spoke to someone, uh, and I'm not even exaggerating, pretty much every time she spoke, she would go bright red in the face. Uh, and she was so embarrassed by the fact that she would go bright red. And a lot of people without social skills might comment, um, you know, oh, my God, you're going red. Why are you going so red? Which would shame her further. And, you know, or therefore she ends up in this really vicious cycle of feeling shame, feeling embarrassed, going redder. Um, so her body's telling us that, that there's an underlying insecurity somewhere that's pumping her heart rate, increasing blood flow straight to her face. So that is a really good example of a symptom telling you there's something deeper going on. What about the stomach ache? Yes, um, stomach aches are really common. Headaches, stomach aches, because let me explain it really, really quickly. What happens when an emotion or an emotional injury is triggered in a human being is the breath changes. It's the first thing that happens. And often it happens without our conscious awareness. So either it speeds up our breath, it goes shallow, or we hold it. Uh, all those three things decrease oxygen. When you decrease oxygen through the body, the heart increases beats per minute. So it speeds up. Now it does that as response to your breath so that it can pump more oxygen around your body for survival. But it's pumping deoxygenated blood into the extremities and away from the gut. And this reduction of oxygen and blood flow in the gut is what makes us feel like we've got butterflies in the tummy. So we all talk about, oh, I've got butterflies in the tummy. We all know it's not actually butterflies. It's the feeling of blood being redirected away from the gut and the reaction of the stomach's sensory nerves in response to that redirection causes us to feel like there's butterflies in our tummy. That's what butterflies <laughs> right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's, butterfly. That's butterflies in the tummy. <laughs> so when anyone has that, if they actually took account of their breath and did some really deep tummy slow breath work, they would soothe those butterflies. But at a higher extreme, we start to feel a bit nauseous. It cuts off our, our digestion. So even if we do manage to eat really clean, nutritious food for energy, if, if we're anxious, we're not digesting the nutrients from that food. The food is just sitting in our gut or sitting in our bowels um, and moving through us. So that will switch off digestion. It will affect our bowels and bladder. So if you've ever, you know, had to run run a running race or go on stage or perform in any way and you all of a sudden feel like you need to pee again that's your body saying get rid of the waste we need to you to be as light as possible so you can survive the imminent danger so constipation diarrhea uh, nauseousness vomiting butterflies digestion stops that is a really common somatic symptom a physical symptom of stress and anxiety so when my clients come to me and say, oh, I get a stomach ache or I've got bowel issues or I can't go to the toilet or um, I feel tired all the time, even though I'm eating really well, it's all communication. It's this checklist in my head that I'm ticking or crossing that that person's experience is feeding back to me about what might be wrong with them and how their body's living, whether it's in survival mode or whether it's thriving. Yeah, right. So headaches too, like uh, you decrease oxygen, you pump deoxygenated blood straight into the head, you, you're going to have muscle constriction, which is going to give you headaches. 
sleeping issues, um, perspiration, jittery. Like I get some young kids that can't sit still because they've got to exert that that um, survival energy through their body. That they're just the physical communication, like not to mention mood, uh, stress levels, self-belief, perceptions of your worth, social skills, the way you connect in relationships, um, concentration, motivation, uh, memory. It's all communication. It sounds like a lot of the emotional injuries can be subtle and not obvious to someone who's experienced them or even who knows someone really well that is experiencing emotional injury. Is there some way that you can figure out whether you've personally had an emotional injury and that's coming out in all these communications or if you have someone in your life that's really significant to you that's had emotional injury, is there some way that you can start identifying that, hmm, maybe this is some kind of communication? I think a large part of it comes down to self-reflection. Like if you're self-aware and, and can listen to what your body is telling you, then you'll be able to understand what it needs from you. The issue with psychological um, symptoms and diagnoses comes from when the emotional injury remains, when the emotion stays stuck, when it's not processed. So an emotion can cause an injury, but then if you process the emotion, it leaves your body and your mind. But when it's stuck, you can carry it through life, triggering it with similar emotions caused by different situations. Can you think of someone that you may have helped in the past that you could use as an example? A really good one might be 23-year-old comes to me, typical symptoms of quite moderate depression. And anxiety so she's functioning she's working she's studying she's got a bunch of friends she's she's pretty well connected but she is having some negative experiences in dating so the story she's starting to tell herself is that I'm not worth I'm not worthy um, nobody wants me uh, as soon as someone gets to know me they're going to abandon me they're not going to want me uh, and as you can imagine, that story that we tell ourselves can then impact our engagement in our next date or meeting the next person. So it almost could become a self-fulfilling profit people need to be really mindful of. So, you know, fast forward X amount of sessions because you wouldn't do any kind of uh, emotional processing work in a new relationship because they need to really trust you. But I don't know, maybe six, seven, eight sessions in, we do a focusing technique and... You can assess if there's an emotional injury three ways. Through bodily felt sense, which is the physical symptoms, and that's emotion talking to you physically through your body. Uh, through emotions, like the actual name of them, happy, sad, glad, mad, or through memory. Now, most of the time I start physically because people are really attuned to their physical symptoms where the memories and the emotions are a lot greyer. So with her, this was particularly easy really easy she's super emotionally intelligent she's quite insightful and she's ready to do the work now that is a great mix for a, a client um, so we started with her physical symptoms uh, and from memory it came up as a dark green mass inside her stomach uh, so it was heavy it was uh, textured it was um, big and it was dark green 
And so I help her to connect to what that feels like physically, what with her mind's eye it looks like. Um, And then I ask her how it feels, like what emotion she could call it. And that's often quite a light bulb moment for them. Um, And she would have said abandoned and lonely and not good enough and not wanted by anyone. And that's how she's feeling after these dates. So um, then what I do is support her to access a memory. Now, this is really hard to articulate verbally because it's experiential therapy. So the way I describe it sounds quite structured, but uh, really as they're experiencing this live in the room in front of you, it's a lot more complicated. But uh, when you get them to access an emotion, and you support them to then link it to a a memory in their unconscious brain. It's like a light bulb that just switches on and they can have this flash, this memory that they might not have even thought of consciously for years and years and years. And the, the memory that flashed into her mind was when she was in hospital, when her grandfather died, uh, when she was eight years old. So again, she's 23, hasn't had this memory consciously for many, many years, but she could see it as a flash uh, visually. Um, And it was the same emotion. It was that he was leaving her. This this kid grew up without a, a father. So her grandfather was really, really important to her. And she interpreted his death unconsciously as abandonment. Um, she felt all the same emotions, left, uh, not wanted, abandoned, lonely, uh, in fear. All the same feelings that she's uh, are being triggered after these dates. So what I then supported her to do was identify the need that she had, which was just acceptance. Was, you know, him still being there with her, a part of her forever and accepting her and loving her, even though he's not, he's not physically with her anymore. And that just really allowed her, fast forward again, another half a dozen sessions or in a, a couple of months, allowed her to really change the experience of dating men. Um, and, and watching her kind of come into herself and realise that if someone doesn't want to be with her, it's not a reflection of her worth, was quite empowering to, to be a part of. Well, is that, is that I'm a little bit teary. Uh, that's really, uh, uh, that's really beautiful. Um, yeah, it is beautiful work. Do you, I mean, you're obviously, I can see emotionally you're connected with that experience and that story. Do you, and you talked about like sitting with the client's emotion. Do you... Like you're taking on all that emotion. Do you feel that at the end of the day? And do you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Emotion-focused therapy uses a practitioner's emotion to communicate and connect and help a client heal. So it is really heavy work. Um, I've become pretty good at switching off emotionally at the end of the day, but during the day I feel it. Must be like a roller coaster. Yeah, 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 especially going, and I like to have breaks um, after every two clients just to give my, my nervous system a chance to kind of settle. Um, but particularly, yeah, when you care about your clients and you can connect to how it feels, your version of the emotion anyway, um, and support that journey, it, it, I really can feel it quite physically through my body. So I, can, my- I can see it just as you're telling the story. Like I can see 
your experience of that emotion. And I mean, I think that's what I'm feeling. Um, it looks, it looks heavy. I mean, it looks really involved. That's actually a really good example to use as a launching point to talk about emotion-focused therapy, because you are, after all, an emotion-focused therapist. Could you introduce EFT and tell us what it is and how it works? Sure. EFT is, as you said, emotion-focused therapy. It, in essence, uses emotion to help uh, address what an underlying need might be for a client. And through the therapeutic relationship, supports clients to heal at an unconscious level. Yeah, so the story you shared of the 23-year-old woman was an amazing overview of what you do in emotion-focused therapy, right? You described that you helped identify this dark green mass in her stomach, that you helped her connect it to an emotion, and then with a memory, and then with her need that she had at the time, a need that wasn't met that created this emotional injury, and then how you helped her get back in her mind's eye and changed the way that she processed that memory and ultimately transformed her dating life, which is pretty amazing. It actually sounds like some crazy voodoo, magic, emotional healing. You, you know, you're, you're fiddling with emotions and memories here? Yeah, so it does not change the memory of what they've experienced. It changes the way that they feel when they have that memory. So it, is, it takes the distress out of it. And you mentioned something really interesting about a lot of people wanting to rescue each other from their distress and how they feel. But unfortunately, what rescuing people from their distress does is a couple of things. First, it implies that there's something wrong with negative emotion. And I think that's a really big contribution towards the increase in mental health symptoms these days is people are afraid to feel. They're afraid to feel anything that's distressing or negative. And, and unintentionally, that's what, we, that's what we show people when we rescue them from their emotion is that you shouldn't be feeling this. So an EFT practitioner sits with their client in the distress. They don't rescue them from it. Uh, they teach, they give their body and brain an opportunity to actually process it, teaching them that it's safe, teaching them that they are safe and allowing their, their brain to reprocess that emotional injury. It's really, really empowering. So can I play devil's advocate on this? So, so Tara, why would you go digging in closets, dragging out dead grandfather of an eight-year-old child when she's probably forgotten it? Like, why don't you just literally leave skeletons in closets and just move on with your life? Like, why, why do you have to bring these things up and relive these painful experiences? Like, haven't you, if you can't remember it, haven't you moved on? Uh, so the conscious brain is only 10% of our functioning. So the, the part that we're aware of is 10%. The unconscious brain is 90% of our functioning. So there's a lot happening outside our awareness. And you say, why don't we leave it? We absolutely can. And that's, that's a client's and individual's choice. Um, the ones that want to leave it aren't in therapy. They're not meeting me. They're not doing this work. And if I get any resistance when meeting somebody, then I absolutely respect that resistance as not being ready or not wanting to go there. Is it okay not to go there? Absolutely. It's protective. The brain will only allow you to go there if it's ready, if you're willing, and if you're able. So it's quite a good question, actually, because if there are some 
really extreme emotional injury from let's say some big T trauma, so sexual abuse in childhood, for example, there are a lot of people that aren't ready to access those memories and process those emotions because it's too dangerous. It's too intense. It could do some real harm. So you've got to make sure that the client feels safe, the client feels connected to you, and the client's driving the work. And if you feel any resistance, then you respect and support that as them not being ready to, to do the work yet. And some people never do, and that's perfectly fine because what how we assess psychological health is on functioning. And, I mean, even the DSM, I hate to mention it because it's so <laughs> clinical and that's not how I work. But even the DSM talks, <laughs> talks about, um, you know, for anyone to be diagnosed with any psych um, illness, it's can you function socially, can you function academically or occupationally? And if, if those checkboxes are ticked, then you can't be diagnosed. So some people could go through some huge, uh, intense emotional injury. And if they've got uh, social connections and they're functioning either through study or through work and they're not interested in digging out the past, then how about it? That's their prerogative. Absolutely. But is it going to come out next time you're queuing up at the fish and chip shop and someone cuts in front of you and all of a sudden you find yourself a raging ball of anger and you're like, wow, that really <laughs> didn't deserve that kind of response? Like, is that what's going to happen? Maybe, but then I guess if that person wanted to change their impulsive reactions to everyday life situations, they might say, okay, what is this symptom and behaviour communicating to me? What do I need to do? So that's that self-awareness, yeah. And then they might jump on the internet or go speak to their GP or have a chat to a friend and say, do you know anyone I could chat to about this because I want to get to the bottom of it? And that's when they engage in therapy and do the work (laughs) does that mean that there are like trigger points in people's lives when they go through major changes or have kids or um you know hit that midlife point when they have particular stress that they start becoming aware of huh maybe i am overreacting to all these things and then they come see you or is it basically just whenever in someone's life Uh, either or like i think it could be as simple as fish and chip shop example you gave or a, a life event like kids would be a big one i think Yeah, well, I guess the bottom line is, as you said, it all starts with self-reflection, becoming aware of our own triggers and emotional responses. But that does need a lot of emotional intelligence though, right? And that emotional intelligence takes time to develop and some listeners, like myself included, probably feel that they're not naturally gifted in that area. Yes, and emotional intelligence is developed out of that secure attachment relationship in early childhood. So when we've been gifted that, we're then able to be a lot more insightful and aware of of the impact that emotions have on our bodies, minds and relationships. Uh, But people that lack emotional intelligence or insight are just in survival mode. You know, like their main goal unconsciously is to protect themselves from something that's too intense to access. So I, I think a huge part of my work also is to support people not to judge themselves when they've been repressing or dissociating from their symptoms all their life. Mm. Uh, because it's just survival, like it's an unhealthy coping strategy, but a coping strategy nonetheless. Same with addiction. You know, we look at psychological diagnosis and conditions 
and they're really ways that the body are learning to cope with deregulation. So the inability to regulate emotions, it's just survival. Mm. Mm. I'm sure no one listening to this conversation is like, yes, I'm totally fine being in that state. Like everyone's going to want their emotions working for them and not the other way around. So how do you know when your emotions are good and when they become maladaptive, um, which is, you know, this word that you use in your offline chat that really pricked my interest, maladaptive emotions? Uh, so just to jump on your language first, though, in my opinion, all emotions are good, every single one of them. Um, but no, not all of them are adaptive. So some adaptive ones are healthy, helpful emotions and maladaptive are unhelpful emotions. But, and, and this is probably uh, the this, this psychoeducation that I give every client that I first meet in the first couple of sessions, every single one of your emotions are healthy um, just because they're negative. And this is what humans tend to do. They go, if it feels bad and if it's negative, it's bad for me, I don't want to feel it. And they learn how to repress and dissociate from it. And if it feels good, then that's how I should feel. Um, and they become quite entitled to happiness. And I think I mentioned this last time, you know, you ask any parent what they want for their child and it's always happiness. It's setting them up for unachievable, unrealistic goals because happiness is not a constant state, just like a negative emotion is never a constant state. But those negative emotions can become maladaptive when they are intensified and hang around for too long. And they're maladaptive when they affect your ability to function socially, occupationally, academically. From my experience, they're maladaptive when people have not learned how to connect to them. So my role in essence is to teach people how to connect to negative emotions safely so they don't become maladaptive. But negative emotions aren't necessarily a pleasant experience either. I think that's why, you know, being in a state of anxiety or anger or fear, it's not always a nice experience. So I imagine, you know, that's why people avoid them. Correct. But if they could lean into that not nice experience, then there's a lesson and the emotion will pass because emotion is just energy. It will pass. We're so scared of things that are negative. But, I mean, let me ask you, how many lessons have you learned about yourself, your relationship, your life, other people through a good emotion? Doesn't it come from reflection from pain? It's probably pain that gets you. It's kind of like going to the gym, right? Like you don't go to the gym yeah. to feel good. You go to the gym to work hard. It hurts your body, but afterwards you feel great. Exactly. Beautiful analogy. Same with food. Like if you're doing everything that feels good, yeah. we're not very healthy. No. If we can sit in the sock, <laughs> and that's what I say to my clients, it's about sitting in the sock. That's about leaning into the discomfort because it's there as communication. It's there as a lesson. If you can lean into it, then there's potential for learning. And growth and it's the most empowering experience in a person's life in my opinion so when you learn to lean into the suck learn to lean into the discomfort and then not only do you learn but it passes and you feel empowered by that it also feels like a more complete human experience to like experience the spectrum of human emotions it feels like you know you're not just playing one key on the piano happy 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 you're experiencing the broad spectrum of emotions. And although it can be discomforting at times, it actually feels more complete. It's like, yep, sometimes I feel sad and it, I just feel sad. 
but that's because I'm a human, right? Exactly right. And this is where parents make a, a huge unintentional mistake because they try and rescue their kids from their emotions. They think that negative emotion means danger. And so innately they swoop in to fix it. They make some very common mistakes like rationalizing, dismissing, problem solving, criticizing, all with the intent to rescue them from how they feel. Great example, little Johnny comes home from school and says, oh my God, I've got no friends, mum. Everybody hates me. Now, how easy it would be for that parent to say, no, darling, that's not true. I know that you've got some great friends. There's little, you know, Sam down the corner or, um, you know, Bob at school. I know he likes you. Like you want to rescue your kid from that feeling. But I can tell you right now that that kid's going to feel that feeling a thousand more times in their life. So if he could be coached to learn how to feel that feeling safely in company with his attachment figure, then his brain will learn how to let it go. So if mum kind of says to him, oh, darling, that would feel so lonely. I'm so sorry, bud. And that little boy has the opportunity to self-soothe him, you know, his own emotions. And he feels safe enough to talk to mum about how he's feeling. And he feels in company and he doesn't feel stupid or ashamed for it or alone in it. And it will pass every time. He'll go back to school the next day and he'll feel liked again. Hmm. If mum reacts in that way, does sorry, if, if mum reacts in that way, does that mean Johnny has a better chance of making more friends? It means Johnny has a better chance of learning how to feel uncomfortable emotions. And because life is full of them, he becomes more emotionally resilient. And he has a better chance of synapsing to his prefrontal cortex at such a vulnerable stage of his development, strengthening development, which allows him to do things like perspective take and pull back from impulse and reason and rationalize and uh, build healthy attachments in his adult life. Okay, well, that's it for today. Tune in next week to hear from one of the leading therapists of EFT in the country for a real deep dive into this treatment. Dr. Melissa Hart literally wrote the book on EFT and just has some amazing insights into human emotions. The purpose of this podcast is to have open chats with these professionals, and it's not designed to be used as individualized therapy. Please take it as general information only and visit the show notes for personalized support if you need it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a comment. Um, it's just awesome to see the comments come in and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. And it also makes these conversations more discoverable by all the searching algorithms. So thank you so much.